Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey everybody, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. It is Halloween week here at Stuff to Blow Your Mind and in the rest of the world, really, to be honest. Uh, so we wanted to roll out a couple of our favorite Halloween episodes. So today we are resurrecting the science of uncanny music, which is uh, one of our favorites and one that we've received a lot of uh, of praise for from uh, listeners. So we thought, hey, let's bring it back. Yeah, if I remember correctly, this uh, this is when we explore the violin strains in Psycho yeah. and the psychological effect, um, which is pretty interesting. Because can you imagine a world without Psycho and that... Yeah, yeah, we really get to the the question, you know, is the is the music in Psycho scary in and of itself, or is it dependent entirely upon the movie that you're watching? Or is it some shade of gray between the two? Find out. Indeed. Since this is the, uh, the Halloween uh, season, and we're talking about creepy, uncanny, scary, frightening, uh, sonic experiences. Uh, let's kick this episode off with just a little bit of uh, the uncanny from uh, the weirding module. We should talk about this weirding module. Yes, yeah, just uh, yeah, real quick. This uh, the weirding module. This is a solo project from musician Christopher Gladwin. Uh, some of you may know him as one half of Team Doyobi, and uh, very accomplished uh, musician has hands in a, a number of different projects. But this one is all about uh, the uncanny, about uh, at times the frightening, the unsettling. Uh, this particular track was titled uh, Chapter 1, Abysmal Cathedrals Arise from Melfluria's Icor from Sunless Regions. And uh, Right there, that gives you a clue. Yeah, it gives you a clue. <laughs> and uh, and you, if you recognize the tune, and that's because uh, he's utilizing uh, Symphony Fantastique from uh, Hector Berlioz. And uh, you may also recognize it because uh, Wendy Carlos used it in the theme to The Shining. Ah, so what we are introducing to you guys today is this idea that a scary movie could perhaps be less scary, or not even scary, without the sort of soundtrack that goes along with it, really amping up our experiences while we're watching something on the screen. And when you listen to something uh, like the Weirding Module, you can already start to sense that dis-ease, that, that sort of decentering that that music makes you feel with some of the chords and some of the ways that it's arranged. Yeah, so it, it raises the question, and this is the question we're going to explore in this episode, to what extent is there something just innately creepy, uncanny, scary, frightening about music like this? Mm-hmm. Or is it all cultural? Is it all contextual? So we're going to unravel that. But but first, um, just to, to, to rehash, we did an episode a while back called Music on the Brain, where we talked about the various ways that, that music uh, speaks to us on a conscious and subconscious level. Uh, and we have to think about music itself. What is music? You know, it's obviously it's a deep part of our cognitive architecture. It changes our mood. It heightens our emotions. Uh, and we've yet to find a culture that didn't or doesn't have it. And uh, some evidence even suggests that the Neanderthals, in absence of language, mm-hmm. may have used music as a means of uh, communication. 
Um, indeed, there are also parts of the brain that respond to music. They don't respond to language. Separate parts of the brain that respond to the melody of language differ from the parts that respond to the melody of music. So music is really kind of this uncanny thing in and of itself. Yeah, I like to bring up cognitive psychologist and linguist Steven Pinker because he's the guy who, he's pretty pretty brilliant guy, but he did say music is just auditory cheesecake, an accident of evol- evolution. But when we look at music a little bit deeper, then we really begin to see that the case that was made in the documentary The Music Instinct with Bobby McFerrin, that music actually may be a precursor to language, as you had said, um, is there. Because you think about music, and there's no one music center in our brains. And mm-hmm. as you had said, there, it, music uses certain parts of our brain that language doesn't. Um, one of the parts that music recruits, and I think this is so interesting, is the visual cortex. And it's thought that the visual cortex actually maps a visual of how the pitch and tone are changing. And in turn, music moves us, literally moves us. We, we dance to it because we envision the movement in it. So keep that in mind as we continue to talk a little bit more about music and how it manipulates us, um, and particularly spooky music, how that might motivate yeah. us. The manipulation is key here because uh, when, when music psychologists talk about music and emotion, they uh, often distinguish between emotion perception, mm-hmm. which refers to the perception of emotions expressed by the music. Music. Like, oh, uh, um, uh, the, sprint, the boss is singing about some sort of sad working class uh, story and running with the law. That's a sad story. The song is sad. I'm interpreting the sadness of it. But when you then, say the boss, you're talking about Bruce Springsteen. Of course, yeah. Of course, well, yes. Yeah. He's still the boss. I don't, I don't think he's that, that position has has not been vacated yet. Yep. Uh, and then there, but then there is emotion induction, and this refers to the listener's effective response to the music. What I think is interesting about this, it's not just the emotional arousal, it's that we actually will show a physical demonstration of that emotion. Yes. And there was a 2009 study of 26 people who, uh, it turns out, bore a strong correlation between subjective emotional response and objective physical response to music. Mu- the paper is called The Rewarding Aspects of Music Listening Are Related to a Degree of Emotional Arousal. And it details the chills that someone can feel when they're listening to something. Yeah, goosebumps, goose flesh, uh, whatever you want to call it. And have you, you yourself experienced this when you listen to any music? Um, I I think the, the, the one that comes to mind is um, Sinner Man by Nina Simone. And I'm talking about the live version. It's like a 10-minute long song. It is... How's that go? Awesome man. <laughs> Actually, you don't want me to do that because I would do that for 10 minutes and it would be insane. But if you listen to that piece of music, it's a rollicking ride of emotions. And the piano just gets crazy at some points. And it's a, it's a very emotional song. And there's um, a lot of syncopated rhythm with the clapping, which is a stand-in for the percussion in it. Oh, very nice. Well, well, I was trying to think of songs that that have the similar effect on me. And for my own part, uh, Radiohead's Everything in Its Right Place. Every time I, I listen to that, particularly just the first uh, few seconds of it, mm-hmm. when the, with this kind of uh, uh, cascade of notes, sort of uh, finding synchronicity, like that, always gives me chill bumps. Again, I think it's, you say cascading, and there's that movement. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. the movement of the music, and and my body moves with it. And I just get the get the chills every time. These 26 people who underwent this experiment, well, machines measured their heart rate, respiration rate, body temperature, and galvanic skin response. This is how much basically. They they were sweating in response to the music and their blood volume pulse. And uh, they were asked to 
click a button every time that they felt really aroused. And so number four, uh, the four-clicking button was the button that correlated with chills. And so they found that 80% of the chills occurred at the highest moment of pleasure reported. So I think that's interesting that it's a pleasurable response, and yet chills is the expression of the body. Yeah, you're, you're intensely satisfied by the music, but it's giving giving you chills. Um, and there was another study we looked at here from neurologist Jack Panksip of Bowling Green State University. This one's interesting because he found that people uh, listening to music often experience goosebumps because of sad feelings, uh, more so than happy or excited emotions. Uh, but a lot of this came down to um, melancholy associations with the past, uh, okay. uh, which, which is kind of like, you know, getting into the context issue of all of this. For instance, that song that you listen to a hundred times in a row during a breakup, you listen to it ten years later, you don't care the least bit about that individual, mm-hmm. but that music can still stir something. And there's a bit of nostalgia in that as well. You know, it, it sort of sucks you back a little bit into that emotional state. It wasn't the idea behind that is that the listener is feeling nostalgic or sad because they, and having goosebumps as a response because they physically are missing the warmth of that person? Yes. The uh, researcher argues that uh, music-induced chills are tied into the chemicals released in our brain to deal with social loss. So the idea is that uh, our ancient ancestors might have experienced this if they were separated from a family member. All right, You, you wander off, uh, and then there are the, the cries you hear in the air of, 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 of uh, lost family members, that that will cause a chill inside you and cause you to have this desire to reach out to the warmth of others. And I thought it was interesting that this was the response that these chill bumps, even uh, for someone who would be singing or listening to the Star Spangled Banner. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, okay, that's a little bit odd. But when you and a little cheesy, no, oh. it's fine, it's fine. It, well, yeah. it, it's nice, it's nice. But if you peel that back a little bit, then you can say, oh, okay, well, what is it to be to to be moved by that song? You feel united with your countrymen and countrywomen. Yeah. So in a sense there, there's that community-based longing. Well, it's like with, with with so many issues we've discussed, you can find this sort of core of like ancestral animal organism sense to mm-hmm. what happens, but then you pile enough layers of uh, human complexity and human cognition, and it just turns into a maze. Yeah, and just to further compound the, the maze, too, of course, we're going to have to look back at the brain, because I want to look at the amygdala for a moment, uh, in particular when we talk about scary music, because the amygdala, as we know, processes emotion, memory, fear. And to test out the theory that certain strains of music can ramp up or dial down the fear response, researchers in Oxford, England, played different kinds of music for people who, whose amygdalas had been removed because of an illness or an accident. And then people without this part of the brain actually had trouble recognizing scary music, whereas people with their amygdalas mm-hmm. intact had a, a definite response when scary music was played, as shown by the brain scanners. So, again, there's an idea that there's so many different parts of your brain that are weighing in on the notes that you hear. Now, I know what a number of you are probably wondering. Well, to what extent is it contextual? Is it cultural? Um, For instance, the the music we heard at the top of the the, the program. Um, A, it's by an an act known as the weirding module. So some of you would, if you hear that, you interpret this uh, kind of uh, strange-sounding name. You're bringing that into the game. Or you're recognizing uh, the piece of music sampled in the work as, uh, as uh, being familiar to something in The Shining. We're bringing all this context, we're bringing all this culture, and so, of course, we interpret it as creepy. So if you were to play creepy music for someone who had zero experience with any of that, would they still find it scary? 
uh, you were talking about the study of the Mafa people in Cameroon who had never ever heard any sort of strains of Western music. And they were introduced to three Western musical clips, one that is typically thought to be sad, one that's happy, and one that's spooky. All three examples, by the way, sound like something that would play during uh, like a... um an old silent film that would be played on the piano, you know? Like yeah, they're the, very the villains classic. tying somebody to the railroad tracks kind of a thing. Uh, yeah, right, and the music speeds up. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, these uh, Cameroonians were also shown something called Ekman faces. And these Ekman faces are photos of standardized expressions of emotions. So in this case, they had a happy, sad, and scared face to look at while they listen to the music. And just like Westerners, the Cameroonians correlated the music type with the same facial expressions. So that would tell you that there's some universality to it. Now, that's not... There are other studies that say, no, that's not, there, you know, some that negate this because there are mm-hmm. other cultures that might hear certain notes and interpret in different ways. Yeah, when you get in deep into, say, the differences between Eastern and Western music, yes. uh, uh, trends in Middle Eastern music versus Western music, then things get a little more complicated. Well, I was just thinking about Chinese opera, which the the um, tones in a Chinese opera might sound very um, harsh or dissonant to the Western ear, yes. but very pleasant to uh, Eastern ear. Yeah, there's a fabulous, I think, NBR piece in the past year about uh, Western, a Western musician, a Western opera singer uh, traveling to China and engaging in Chinese opera and sort of dealing with the, 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 the contrast between Western opera and Chinese opera, mm-hmm. between some of the overlap of the performers. And uh, it's, it's interesting because they are such different animals. Well, in, even in language, and Allison and I had kind of talked about this a little bit, there's a musicality to language. Mm-hmm. And if you look at something like Vietnamese, one word can be said in uh, five different tones and mean five entirely different things. Yeah, so sim- similar thing in Mandarin, yeah. Yeah, so it's much more nuanced uh, and it has to be taken into account. Uh, but Christopher Gladwin, uh, the man behind the weirding module, had some very interesting thoughts on this universality. Yeah, I was exchanging some emails uh, uh, with Chris, and he had a lot of great info to, to share. And uh, sadly, between the two of us, we didn't have time to do an audio interview, but I'll uh, hopefully be sharing some stuff on the blog uh, from him in the uh, the weeks ahead. He said, quote, There are sounds which almost universally cause revulsion or fight-or-flight responses. The sound of vomiting came out as the most obnoxious auditory experience in a worldwide Internet survey conducted by Professor Trevor Cox. The reason for this uh, is that we're it's hardwired to our biology. Avoid those that are disgorging the contents of their stomachs unless you want the same to happen to you. (laughs) Other sounds that came out on top were babies crying and nails down at blackboard. Both of these sounds have relatively complex high-frequency tones that we are evolutionarily designed to respond to. Having a year-old daughter, I can appreciate this. Many industrial bands have used such uh, casual tactics, throbbing gristle and their use of uh, recordings of dogs attacking a dummy. Uh, Etc. And, and he goes on to uh, to, to discuss this in, in further depth, and I will uh, hopefully share that with everyone uh, later on. But but yeah, there are certain things that just as an organism mm-hmm. we uh, feel this either disgust with or yeah. this aversion to, or it just sets off all our alarms. I mean, the the baby crying, I, I too am experiencing that one with the uh, the toddler that uh, my wife and I have uh, have adopted. Uh, he will um, he'll start. You know, crying or tuning up a little bit in the middle of the night, mm-hmm. and it just has this intense effect on me. Uh, 
to where I even after I I put him back to sleep, mm-hmm. my heart's just still beating like crazy. Like it's just it's reaching behind my brain and uh, and you know grabbing hold of the reptilian uh, portion there. Right now, is your cat biscuit mimicking the the cries yes. of a newborn? Yeah, well, you know, there's that argument that that's what cats are doing anyway, and they're mm-hmm. they're perverse means of manipulating their humans. And so, yeah, it will, there'll be situations where the, the child is authentically crying and then the cat is also crying and it's mock human voice. And it's, it's uh, you know what this is like. This yes. is frustrating. It becomes a loud household at 3 a.m. Yes. Yeah. Um, Christopher Gladwin also mentions there was a sound that he found difficult to describe. Michael Gira of the Swans, he said, put it best, that sex death sound that comes from somewhere deep inside there are some experiences of sound that you just get that. <laughs> you tried to spell it out. That's the best I can do. Feeling from and some sort of possession occurs. I believe that this connects with some subterranean evolutionary memory, something in our ancestral reptilian fish brain. We still have vestigial fish ears, you know. And I yeah. thought, you know what? That sound. I let me tell you this, and it's, I'm going to give you the context. It was not a sexual context, so you don't have to put your hands up to your ears and say no, 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 no. Okay. I did something called the seven minute workout. Do you know about this? No. It is awful. It is like this ramped up, high density, crazy workout you do for seven minutes at just the the best and highest rate that you can. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I heard these noises coming out of of myself that I was. <laughs> A little bit shamed of, uh, I felt a little bit uh, like freaked out that they were actually coming out. But I understand what he's saying. There's a guttural, like, oh my God, I'm dying inside noise that I had never heard come out of myself before. And so there is something to that, this evolutionary, like, oh, there's something wrong. Yeah, uh, an example of that, I was uh, driving my, my child around uh, in the middle of the night trying to get him to sleep immediately after returning home, and he was super jet lagged, and I was jet lagged. And uh, so I was listening to Radiolab, catching up on some Radiolab ish, uh, episodes. And there's an excellent one they did recently on rabies. Mm-hmm. And in that uh, episode, they play some audio of humans who have rabies and are experiencing that rage and that just, you know, the, the, the mindless rage that is associated with the later stages of rabies. And it was extremely unsettling to hear those sounds. Like, and, and it's, and I wonder to what extent it's kind of cross over to that. This, this idea that that, that is on some level human, but it must be bodily possession by some outside force that is making that kind of noise. And you're right, that bodily possession, mm-hmm. as if you are outside of yourself or something was outside of itself. All right, uh, we should probably take a quick break. And when we get back, we, you and I, Robert Lamb, are going to actually sing some of the strains of music classics, not because we necessarily want to do that to your ears, but because we have no budget. Correct. All right, so stand by. All right, we're back. Robert, did you know that in the original cut of Psycho, that Hitchcock did not want those high-pitched violin screams to accompany the shower scene? You mean famous the- iconic? <laughs> Sorry about that. Again, we have no budget, so that's what yeah. you guys are getting. Um, it was actually his wife... Uh, Alma Revel, who was a scriptwriter and actually a director of, of her um, own right, and an editor who said, no, 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 you need to check out Bernard Herrmann's score that he's created for this. It's amazing. It's going to do its thing. And they actually tested two versions, one with the, with the violins and one without. 
And apparently, when they uh, showed the audience one without, they were a little like, eh, okay, yeah. so this, this woman's getting hacked to death in a shower. But when they accompanied the violin strains of Bernard Herrmann, people freaked out. Huh. It's, it's interesting to think of, I, I, having not seen the scene without the music, I mean, it's hard to imagine, because it's such an iconic scene, and the yeah. two go together so well, and... When I imagine the scene in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking that's a really horrific scene. You know, even yeah. even though it it doesn't show as much um, in way in the way of nudity or bloodshed that mm-hmm. you might you know, that I'm sure you can get away with today, uh, it's so effective and so disturbing. And yet, the music is what seems to make it so effective. Like in in a sense, we can't feel or even imagine what those the stabs feel like physically. Yeah. Because most of us have not been brutally stabbed with a butcher knife before. But the music kind of fills that place. It's interesting that you say that it's it's not that much nudity and it's not that much violence because then then what you thought because a lot of people when they when they ask people, you know, about that scene they tend to envision much more violence and nudity than there actually is because of that heightened emotionality there, I think. Um, And, of course, it's that high-pitched sound, and we'll get a little bit more into that in terms of the animal world. Um, But I wanted to mention that in terms of pitch, Daniel Blumstein, uh, he scrutinized 102 films and found that horror films had a higher-than-expected number of abrupt shifts up and down in pitch, which he reported in the Royal Society Journal Biology Letters. So already you can see that there are very different ways that um, that filmmakers and uh, musical composers can manipulate the brain. And in terms of psycho, that was just something that they didn't necessarily know. Like, hey, we've got all these neuroscientists saying yeah. like the amygdala is going crazy. It was just sort of a hunch yeah. that this music would heighten the effect. Yeah, so like you said, they didn't have the neuroscientists, but they did have musical tradition. Uh, obviously, Bernard Herrmann knew what worked. Because uh, yeah. t- you look at stuff like Peter and the Wolf, you know? Uh, that's a classic one that we always learn in, like, elementary music class, where every character has kind of their own little jaunty number, and you, you're you you're told by your music teacher, oh, well, this, this music is behaving like this because mm-hmm. this is what's happening in the story. Um, some of the, the, the basics, though, chord, tempo, and amplitude, okay? So... With chords, we have minor and major chords. And in a very uh, very broad sense, minor chords evoke sad feelings, major chords are happy. Mm-hmm. Um, at least, again, in Western music. Um, you ta- and uh, the interesting thing is if you take something in a major key and you translate it into a minor key, you go from happy to sad. Mm-hmm. As, uh, as a, a, an engineer, a musician by the name of Oleg Berg has uh, demonstrated, uh, he's uh, uh, from the Ukraine, and he has a, a YouTube account, takes a number of songs, such as um, the Eurythmics, Sweet Dreams Are Made of These, Minor Key, transforms it, uh, tweaks it, makes it a major key song, and it's suddenly a different entire emotional experience. Suddenly it's upbeat and not kind of dark and, uh, and you know, foreboding. Uh, it does the same thing with Losing My Religion. Instead of it being this kind of, you know, down song about, oh, I've lost my religion, I've kind of lost my way. It's more like, I've lost my religion, I'm free, I'm happy, and Michael Stipes is dancing around. Uh, it's more in, in, in keeping with, uh, you know, it's the end of the world as I know it, as opposed to what we, we have come to expect from Losing My Religion. Now, he also took the song Don't Worry, Be Happy, recorded mm-hmm. by Bobby McFerrin. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. Don't worry. Here's a happy. little song I wrote. I mean, just relentlessly upbeat, right? Yeah. And he put that in a minor key. And I, I don't know. It's It sounds like the beginnings of a mental breakdown. Yeah. it's uh, like It brings to mind the, the happy Bobby McFerrin reduced 
to uh, hopping on a boxcar somewhere, you know, like shivering. Yeah, you're like, there's yeah. there's going to be problems ahead. I know you're saying, don't worry, be happy, but mm-hmm. it doesn't sound like you really mean it. So it's amazing that just that shift can create that sense of dread and doom. Now, it's interesting with pop music, as pointed out by Glenn Schellenberg of the University of Toronto. Uh, if you look at uh, through the 1980s and the 90s, uh, there's uh, definitely a dominance of the major key in the top 40s, but it begins to shift uh, slowly at first and then really radically. And by 2009, only 18 out of the top 40 songs are in the major key. So there are various explanations for this. And partially, people get kind of used to the major key mm-hmm. uh, uh, preference in pop music, and it becomes more and more cliche. So avoiding cliches, the trend moves towards the minor key. But also there's the, the idea that... Uh, People were coming around more to the idea that life is not so happy, that life is maybe a little more nuanced and a little more ambiguous. And then there's sadness uh, at least around the corner from any happiness, if not uh, meshed in it to begin with. So even something that uh, is more or less universal, you start applying enough uh, uh, cultural influence to it, it can mm-hmm. begin to shift. It's interesting that that's um, that that's something that's happening because I was just thinking about the Halloween music. The, the are you familiar with that one? The John Carpenter oh, film. Yeah. John, of course uh, you are. Yeah, John Carpenter, Alan Howarth, uh, both uh, both. I mean, John Carpenter, excellent director, yeah. writer, etc. But also an accomplished musician, and his work with Alan Howarth is is some of my favorite stuff. But that music has been sampled in pop music. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, um, and and that's actually is a really good example of tempo in an odd meter. And when we talk about tempo, we're talking about how, how fast or slow the music... Again, you feel the motion in that music, right? Yeah, like even as you were, uh, you were doing that, you were bobbing back and forth as if you were running. Right, and um, the thing about that is that most music uses beat counts divisible by two, but the Halloween score uses an odd meter of 5-4 that sort of creates that weird, like, catch-up feeling. Like, you just can't really quite get there. Yeah, like, you're just, you're trying to stay one step ahead of the mass killer. You're trying to get to the car before the mass killer gets you, but you're not quite there. Exactly, and now think about your visual cortex trying to map that. Yeah, and all while you're watching Jamie Lee Curtis do that it, it works perfectly yeah yeah girl you're in danger yeah all of that's happening and according to neil lerner he is a professor of music at davidson college in davidson north carolina and an expert in horror film music one music technique is messing with that tempo uh, to suggest that chase and he says that music music typically speeds up and grows louder as the danger closes in and he says, my hunch is that our brains hear that music in terms of being hunted. Our instincts tell us a creature is upon us and we need to run away or just uh, turn and fight it. Well, there's obviously one great example of that that everyone's already thinking of. Boom, 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 Jaws, of course. Of uh, course. Yes. Classic uh, John Williams score, uh, iconic John Williams score, uh, been sampled all over the place, but not here because we can't afford it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that, you know, that'll have to do. But yeah, you've got those crescendoing minor chords that yeah. begin slicing in. And it, obviously you can't run from a shark. 
um, I mean, you, you can, but if you're running from the shark, you're really okay. You don't. You're really, on land. Yeah, you're good. But but it does bring this idea. It's like I'm stepping, I'm stepping, I'm walking a little mm-hmm. faster, and then I'm running, uh, and and it just grabs us right, uh, you know, right right at the root of our reptilian brain. Yeah, and then in the middle of that, you have the high pitched noises in in terms of the whistle. Right, yeah. you've got the lifeguard on the beach blowing the whistle, and then when Jaws finally gets victim, you've got the boom, big note pulling the person under. Yeah. Corresponding with it. Oh, I'm telling you right now, if I had some sort of galvanic skin response <laughs> that was looking at my, uh, like how much I was sweating, they would feel it right now, just in talking <laughs> about it. Now, to return to Daniel Bloomstein, uh, he also pointed out that uh, when he looked at 102 different film scores, he found that, among other things, the screams of animals were used in several key scenes in horror films, including such... Uh, Iconic films as The Exorcist and The Shining, um, and and this is this is a is, is very interesting because uh, in, in a sense it's very straightforward. Mm-hmm. The cries of animals are going to resonate with us in the same way that the cries of of humans are going to resonate with us. Yeah, and didn't he get this idea of of um, really looking at these film scores for animal cries because he was working with actually yellow-bellied marmots? Yes. And he notices that when the researchers went to go and grab the, the marmots, that they would have these high-pitched screams. And he thought, wow, I wonder you know, what that's doing to our brains. And then he examined those film scores and then found those the animal screams, which I thought was really interesting. So he, along with film composer Michael Kay, created a study here, of course, uh, patterned on these screaming marmots. And they had a neutral music clip as well as music segments with non-linear sounds. So that marmot was creating a discordant, non-linear sound. Yeah, and that's something that um, uh, that Christopher Gladwin brought up as well, that uh, discordia, of course, is big. And in music, you think of all the shrieking, mm-hmm. uh, clanging noises. Uh, one that comes instantly to mind, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, has an, a highly effective score. And it's another film that isn't nearly as violent or bloody as some people think it is. But it's just everything just fell together perfectly in that film. So you have Discordia, and then you have you have these uh, these animal sounds popping up, and uh, and another thing Gladwin mentioned is the taking of animal sounds or, mm-hmm. or other sounds that are natural, tweaking them into an unnatural area, and then they hit us in a way where we're like, "What is that? I don't know what that is." And the the, the fear of the unknown is summoned. Yeah, I noticed this when we visited Netherworld last year mm-hmm. in the haunted house, the haunted in, house mm-hmm. and in the background there were these sort of clanging elements that were going on. Now this was just the house music before they not, actually not opened actual it. Not actual house music though. No, it, right? There was no like thump 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 thump. <laughs> Um, but, you know, it was this way of kind of setting the scene and making people feel a little bit uncertain about yeah, what was going on. Yeah, because what's it going to do? What's it, what sound is coming next? Yeah. You know, our pattern recognition craving brains don't know what to make of it. So we're on edge. We're, we don't know what's happening next. Yeah, would someone please play that chasing music so I know to run? <laughs> All right, so in this experiment that, that Kay and Blumstein created, uh, they found that participants were far more stimulated by the nonlinear music segments. In addition, this is so interesting to me, if the non Nonlinear melodies became higher, the emotional reaction was more pronounced, much like a mother tuning into the tensed vocal cord screams of the baby marmot. And so what he's saying is that um, that these vocal cord straining sounds are unbluffable signs of fear in the animal world. And of course, they would be in, in, in the human world as well. And it made me think back to those high-pitched, strangled um pitches of the violin during the psycho shower scene. Oh, indeed. In fact, let's listen to a marmot scream because we have a little clip. 
right, so you can kind of hear <laughs> that there's... There's that element. Yeah. How did they get the scream out of the marmot? Do we want to know? Uh, I think that they continually advanced upon the marmot until they were like, "You're you're in my zone <laughs> here. I'm feeling uncomfortable." Okay, well, as long as no marmots were harmed. No. Okay, so we've talked a lot about the way that um, that scary music, unsettling music, uncanny music, how it will enhance some uh, the visuals of a horror movie or what have you uh, but what happens when we take um, take away the visual context from the music well it turns out um, that it can do a couple of different things if you if you take away from the context you can actually water down the effect because bloomstein had a second stage of his study and participants were asked to watch objectively boring videos we're talking about drinking coffee or reading a book, which was paired with nonlinear music. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they found that the same distorted music was much less emotionally stimulating and, and much less scary when it went along with something that was just kind of rote. So watching a guy press his pants while a music box track plays is just pretty ho hum, right? Yeah, and and you know there's no in- room for interpretation in these examples either. It's not yeah. like say, uh, imagine like a, a film of a, of a mother approaching a cradle where it seems like that's a situation where if you played happy music mm-hmm. you know sad music or or scary music you could really force us to 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 make the story in our own heads like oh my you know oh my goodness what's in that cradle what's not in that cradle but a guy ironing his shorts Eh, you know, that's probably not going to be a pitch for a horror movie anytime soon. Unless those tinny strains of a music box are playing, and then they pan to, like, a porcelain doll batting her eyes, and you hear a door creak. Yeah, and then you have a, a, a student film, right? Yes. How did you know that was my film? <laughs> <laughs> and then here's another aspect of this, of the visual context, is that when you shut your eyes, you change the emotional landscape. Mm-hmm. And I want you guys to guess out there, would it be uh, more horrific or less horrific? I would have guessed less horrific. Really? Yes. Before this. Okay. Simply because it's something that I do when I don't, you know, I, I think that I'm lessening the experience oh. when I'm watching Oh, you're watching some scary and then you close your eyes. Well, it's like my, my friend Dave will blur his eyes out during scary parts in a movie to accomplish the same thing. Yeah. Like just sort of stare at nothing. Um I, I guess it didn't surprise me because I listened to enough creepy music mm-hmm. that I I do find that uh, like I'm listening to Weirding Module or I'm listening to like Throbbing Gristle or or what have you Chris Carter uh, and it's uh, if I'm if I'm zoning out or I'm closing my eyes it really takes on a, a richer darker form in my mind. I'm still stuck on Throbbing Gristle. Oh, they're one of the the, the mainstays. Yeah. It's just the combination. One of the creepiest tracks of all time, Hamburger Lady. Look it up if you want to feel terrified. <laughs> okay. Throbbing Gristle, yeah. Hamburger Lady. Yeah. All right. In research published in the Public Library of Science, one by Tel Aviv University researchers found that the premise of squinting your eyes shut during a freaky scene may actually heighten your fear response, as we've just said. Uh, volunteers listen to Hitchcock-style music twice, once with their eyes open, and once with their eyes shut. And with their eyes closed, their amygdalas were far more active. And volunteers said that they also felt the emotional effects being much more pronounced when when they were completely in the dark listening to this. So yeah, it seemed to wire together a direct connection to the regions of our brain that process emotions. And, and it's not merely subjective. They're using a, a functional MRI. And they can see the distinct changes in the brains uh, were more pronounced when the person's eyes were not being used. Yeah, so the idea is that you're actually better able to focus on your fear response. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know, 
climb into this fMRI machine, listen to some really unsettling music, mm-hmm. and we'll just see what happens. Yeah, that's cool, right? <laughs> so, I mean, those are a couple of ways that, that uh, music can actually game our response. And I was thinking about this in terms of political ads. Oh, yeah. You know, those sort of dom dom notes that are played sometimes to cast one of the politicians. Julie Douglas thinks she knows what's best for America. Dom, dom. But does, but does she, she really? really? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Um, another great example of this uh, in, in terms of you changing the music, changing the tone of something, if you've ever seen the trailer for Shining, um, it's available on YouTube where someone took the um, the trailer for The Shining, uh, Kubrick's adaptation of Stephen King's novel uh, that we've been talking about here, took that, recut it, added some happy music, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think threw in one little Jack Nicholson quote from another movie uh, about fatherhood and made the film look like a, a romantic comedy that maybe involves ghosts a little bit as yeah. opposed to a, a horrific journey into horror. It is hilarious because it looks like this inspirational tale of fatherhood and, and being a writer as well. Yeah. And Shelley Duvall actually looks perky in those clips. <laughs> so there you have it. Uh, to quote uh, Christopher Gladwin one last time, he said, It is my belief that our reaction to music we find unsettling is triggered by a combination of inherited biological responses modified by culturally acquired behavior. So, yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up right there. So as we close out the podcast here, let's just listen to one last clip uh, from the weirding module. Uh, this is the fourth track from Mellifuous Icor from Sunless Regions. The Science of Uncanny Music. And, uh, and hey, if you enjoyed uh, the weirding module, uh, go look him up. He has, uh, I'm sure he's putting out a, a mix for Halloween this year, and I think he has a new uh, release coming out in the new year. So uh, so definitely definitely check him out. He's one of my favorites. Yep, and uh, send us your thoughts, maybe even your memories of your most frightening movies as a child and how the music affected you. And you can do that by sending us an email to blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. On this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 